Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss smog so thick that it killed thousands and shut down London, a UFO incident in Pennsylvania, and the biggest heist in Japan that remains unsolved. The events take place on December 5th, 9th, and 10th. December 5th, 1952. Beginning of the Great Smog in London. A cold fog combines with air pollution and brings the city to a standstill for four days. A period of unusually cold weather preceding and during the Great Smog led Londoners to burn a lot more coal than usual to keep themselves warm. While better quality hard coals, such as anthracite, tended to be exported to pay off World War II debts, Post-war domestic coal tended to be of a relatively low-grade, sulfurous variety, which increased the amount of sulfur dioxide in the smoke. There were also numerous coal-fired power stations in the greater London area, which added to the pollution. The relatively large size of the water droplets in the London fog allowed for the production of sulfates without the acidity of the liquid rising high enough to stop the reaction and for the acid to become concentrated when the fog was burned away by the sun. Research suggests that additional air pollution prevention systems may have worsened the air quality. Flue gas washing reduced the temperature of the flue gases so they did not rise but instead slumped to the ground level. Additionally, there was pollution and smoke from vehicle exhaust, particularly from steam locomotives and diesel-fueled buses which had replaced the recently abandoned electric tram system. Other industrial and commercial sources also contributed to the air pollution. On December 4, 1952, an anticyclone settled over a windless London, causing a temperature inversion with cold, stagnant air trapped under a layer of warm air. The resultant fog, mixed with smoke from home and industrial chimneys and other pollutants, such as sulfur dioxide, formed a persistent smog which blanketed the capital the following day. The presence of terry particles of soot gave the smog its yellow-black color. The absence of wind prevented its dispersal and allowed an unprecedented accumulation of pollutants. Although London was accustomed to heavy fog, this one was denser and longer-lasting than any previous fog. Visibility was reduced to about 10 feet making driving difficult to impossible. Public transportation ceased, apart from the London Underground, and the ambulance service stopped, forcing individuals to transport themselves to the hospital. The smog was so dense that it even seeped indoors, resulting in cancellation or abandonment of concerts and film screenings as visibility decreased in large enclosed spaces, and stages and screens became harder to see from the seats. Outdoor sporting events were also cancelled. In the inner London suburbs and away from town centers, there was no disturbance by moving traffic to thin out the dense fog in the back streets. As a result, visibility could be only a few feet or so in the daytime. This was made even worse at night, since each back street lamp at the time was fitted with an incandescent light bulb, which gave no penetrating light 
onto the pavement for pedestrians to see their feet or even a lamppost. Fog-penetrating fluorescent lamps did not become widely available until later in the 1950s. Smog masks were worn by those who were able to purchase them from chemists. There was no panic, as London was infamous for its fog. In the weeks that ensued, however, statistics compiled by medical services found that the fog had killed 4,000 people. Most of the victims were very young or elderly, or had pre-existing respiratory problems. In February of 1953, Marcus Lipton suggested in the House of Commons that the fog had caused 6,000 deaths and that 25,000 more people had claimed sickness benefits in London during that period. Mortality remained elevated for months after the fog. A preliminary report blamed those deaths on an influenza epidemic, but evidence later revealed that only a fraction of the deaths could be from influenza. Most of the deaths were caused by respiratory tract infections, hypoxia, and obstruction of the air passages from lung infections caused by the smog. The lung infections were mainly pneumonia or bronchitis. Research published in 2004 suggests that the number of fatalities was considerably higher than contemporary estimates at about 12,000. The Great Smog is thought to be the worst air pollution event in the history of the United Kingdom and the most significant for its effects on environmental research, government regulation, and public awareness of the relationship between air quality and health. It led to several changes in practices and regulations, including the Clean Act of 1956. Here's my take on the Great Smog of London. That sounds awful. Just awful. I can't imagine walking outside and thinking anything like that is normal, or even half that is normal. The current air quality in China and India is probably similar, maybe Russia, I don't know. But that girl from Sweden that looks like a bobblehead needs to start yelling at them, because I don't think they're following the Paris Agreement. December 9th, 1965. A fireball is seen from Michigan to Pennsylvania, and witnesses report something crashing into the woods near Pittsburgh. Astronomers said it was likely to have been a meteor burning up in the atmosphere and descending at a steep angle. There were reports of hot metal debris over Michigan and northern Ohio, and grass fires and sonic booms in the Pittsburgh area. Some people in the village of Kecksburg about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, reported that something from the sky had crashed into the woods with wisps of blue smoke, vibrations, and a thump. An early story in the Greensburg Tribune Review stated the following, The area where the object landed was immediately sealed off on the order of the U.S. Army and state police officials, reportedly in anticipation of a close inspection of whatever may have fallen. State police officials then ordered the area roped off to await the expected arrival of both U.S. Army engineers and possibly civilian scientists. When state troopers and Air Force personnel searched the woods, they reportedly found absolutely nothing. A subsequent edition of the Tribune Review 
bore the headline, Searchers Failed to Find Object. Authorities discounted proposed explanations such as a plane crash, missile test, or satellite debris, and generally assumed it to be a meteor. The Department of Defense in Washington said first reports indicated the fireball was a natural phenomenon. In December of 2005, just before the 40th anniversary of the Kecksburg incident, NASA released a statement reporting that experts had examined metallic fragments from the area and determined they were from a Russian satellite that re-entered the atmosphere and broke up, but records of their findings were lost in the 1990s. Leslie Keene, described as an investigative reporter backed by the Sci-Fi Channel, reportedly sued NASA under the Freedom of Information Act for the lost NASA records. On October 26, 2007, NASA agreed to search for those records after being ordered by a court. During the hearing, Steve McConnell, a NASA public official, testified that two boxes of papers from the time of the Kecksburg incident were missing. Loss of records is not unique for NASA. For example, the original tapes recorded during the televised Apollo 11 moon landing were misplaced or reused. More recent comments by NASA are less supportive of a link to a Russian satellite. They said, quote, There is some speculation that the re-entry of the Cosmos 96 spacecraft was responsible for a fireball which was seen over southwestern Ontario in an at least eight states from Michigan to New York at 4.43 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 9, 1965. Investigations of photographs and sightings of the fireball indicated its path through the atmosphere was probably too steep to be consistent with the spacecraft re-entering from Earth orbit and was more likely a meteor in orbit from the vicinity of the asteroid belt and probably ended its flight over western Lake Erie. U.S. Air Force tracking data on Cosmos 96 also indicate the spacecraft orbit decayed earlier on December 9th. Other unconfirmed reports state the fireball subsequently landed in Pennsylvania, southeast of Pittsburgh, near the town of Kettsburg, at 4.46 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Although estimating the impact point of fireballs from eyewitness accounts is really inaccurate. Uncertainties in the orbital information and re-entry coordinates and time make it difficult to determine definitively if the fireball could have been the Cosmos 96 spacecraft. In 1990, the NBC television show Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode partially devoted to the incident. The episode suggested an extraterrestrial craft had crashed. It quoted local residents at the time who said they found an object in the woods shaped like an acorn about as large as a Volkswagen Beetle bearing writing resembling Egyptian hieroglyphs, which was subsequently removed in a secret military operation. A prop from that show remains on display in the village. Many documentaries have been created about the incident on the Sci-Fi Channel, History Channel, Discovery Channel, and many more, often alleging a government cover-up. Here's my take on the Kecksburg UFO incident. I've seen a few of the documentaries and thought there were some credible witnesses, but that's probably not true. Most of these documentaries are filled with bullshit, but it's always fascinating and entertaining. It was probably a meteor, uh, but I don't trust the word from the government, so who knows? Certainly not me. 
But it's weird how the official story even changed. You know, it was officially a satellite, and then it was officially a meteor within a matter of a few years. So maybe it was a spaceship. December 10th, 1968. Japan's biggest heist, the still unsolved 300 million yen robbery, is carried out in Tokyo. On the morning of December 10th, 1968, four branch employees of the Nippon Trust Bank transported 294 million yen in the trunk of a company car, which is over 800,000 US dollars at 1968 exchange rates. The metal boxes contained bonuses for the employees of the Toshiba factory. They were stopped in the street next to Tokyo prison by a young police officer in full uniform and riding a police motorcycle. They were only 200 meters from their destination. The police officer informed them that their branch manager's house had been blown up and they received a warning that dynamite was planted in the transport car. The four employees exited the vehicle while the officer crawled under the car to locate the bomb. Moments later, the employees noticed smoke and flames under the car as the officer rolled out, shouting that it was about to explode. When the employees retreated to the prison walls, the police officer got in the car and drove away. The bank employees believed that the thief was a police officer and accepted his story about the bomb because threatening letters had been sent to the bank manager beforehand. The smoke and the flames turned out to be the result of a warning flare he had ignited while under the car. At some point, the thief abandoned the bank's car and transferred the metal boxes into another stolen car. That car too was later abandoned and the boxes transferred once again to another previously stolen vehicle. There were 120 pieces of evidence left at the scene of the crime, including the police motorcycle, which had been painted white. However, the evidence was primarily common, everyday items, scattered on purpose to confuse the police investigation. A 19-year-old man, the son of a police officer, was suspected just after the robbery. He died of cyanide poisoning on December 15, 1968. He had no alibi, however, the money was not found at the time of his death. His death was deemed a suicide and he was considered not guilty according to official records. A massive police investigation was launched, posting almost 800,000 montage pictures throughout Japan. The list of suspects was over 100,000 names, and 170,000 policemen participated in the investigation, the largest investigation in Japanese history. On December 12, 1969, a 26-year-old man was suspected of the robbery. He was arrested on an unrelated charge, but he had an alibi. The robbery occurred on the day he was taking a supervised exam. As the arrest was made based on false pretenses, the arresting police officer was accused of abusing his power. A friend of the 19-year-old suspect was also arrested on an unrelated charge on November 15, 1975, just before the statute of limitations. He had a large amount of money and was suspected of the robbery. He was 18 years old when the robbery occurred. The police asked him for an explanation for the large amount of money, 
but he did not say anything and they were not able to prove that his money had come from the robbery. After a seven-year investigation, police announced in December of 1975 that the statute of limitations on the crime had passed. As of 1988, the thief has also been relieved of any civil liabilities, allowing him to tell the story without fear of legal repercussions. Here's my take on the 300 million yen robbery. That dude is a smooth criminal. There's a simple plan, and nobody got hurt. And I hope he never gets caught, but I would like to know the full story. It'd be a cool movie. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. Of course not. December 7th, 1982. In Texas, Charles Brooks Jr. becomes the first person to be executed by lethal injection in the United States. I like hearing about executions that go horribly wrong, like a noose nearly ripping someone's head off, or a lethal injection cocktail that causes immense pain because it was mixed wrong. Uh, something like that. I do enjoy hearing, but as a whole, lethal injection, I'm not into that. Lethal injection is way too civil for a savage waste of life that kills innocent people. I know I'm a broken record, but we need to bring back cruel and unusual punishment as the only form of capital punishment. December 8th, 2019, the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in China. I have a feeling the first case was confirmed long before that. Uh, Probably months before that. December 11th, 1964. Che Guevara speaks at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City. More commie trash that uh, is adored by Americans. Stupid Americans. Che Guevara was a total piece of shit. Uh, But he's a folk hero in the United States. Uninformed people talk about him as some kind of militant doctor that traveled the world saving people. Uh, But he killed a lot more than he ever saved. And uh, he despised homosexuals and black people too. That's going to do it for today. Thank you everybody for tuning in. And I'll talk to you soon. 